0: Welcome to See It Our Way, a student-run podcast from the Foundation for Blind Children's Adult Services Comprehensive Program, located in Phoenix, Arizona. Our goal is for listeners to see it our way and learn about journeys through life with low vision and blindness. This podcast hopes to raise awareness and help listeners understand how we go about our daily lives during and after vision loss. You will hear stories of hope and perseverance, creating a conversation about how life with vision loss is not worse, just different.
1: Hello and welcome to See It Our Way, the podcast from the Adult Services Program at the Foundation for Blind Children. I'm Matthew Bullis, and I have today with me Mel Boss, a former student of mine, and I brought him in here to talk about his life, his career, and how it benefits students in the FPC program and in
0: other areas. How are you today? Good, Matthew, thank you. So tell me about yourself. Okay, for the past 10 years, I've really been sort of a self-employed project management consultant, and I call myself Mel Bost, PMO expert. The PMO has to do with the program management office, which is a specialty that most large organizations have. Siemens Corporation, Walmart has a PMO, for example. My formal education is science and engineering, along with some business administration, for about 35 years, I worked in a corporate environment with some fairly large companies like Atlantic Ridgefield, Ford Motor Company, ConocoPhillips. Phillips. Conoco Phillips was the conglomeration or the merger of two oil companies. One was Conoco, headquartered in Houston, and the other was Phillips Petroleum, which was headquartered in Bartlesville, Oklahoma. Those two organizations merged to form Phillips, which was then one of the largest integrated oil firms in the world. You know, it wasn't quite the size of ExxonMobil. But in 2003, I was asked... To be a member of the merger team and help put together what was called a program management office, which meant we had a small team that worked on the methodology, the processes, the policies, the procedures by which the PMO would operate. So if you were running the program management
1: office, you'd be the project manager and the people under you would be project assistants or what would that be? Well, the
0: program management office normally has a director and then there are a number of project managers who work for that director. You'd also have a group that was developing this methodology, policies, procedures, and so forth. Typically, a PMO has anywhere from five to 10 project managers, each one assigned to a specific project. It's essentially become a best practice because it looks out across the industry and sees what other people are doing that could benefit the organization and brings those practices in and incorporates them into the PMO. About 10 years ago, I started a blog And I called the blog Mel Bost, PMO Expert. And what I tried to do was to select some issues from the project community that people would be interested in. I also talked about project manager behavior, lessons learned, and other issues that involve the project community. Now, for those who aren't familiar with projects, in its simplest form, projects turn strategy into action for either an individual or an organization. Once you've developed a strategy, what you want to accomplish, you put together a plan and a timetable and resources. That's where the project comes from. About a year after I started writing the blog, I received a phone call from a representative from the Panama Canal Authority who had been reading my blog and asked me if I would develop a proposal to teach their managers and engineers how to capture lessons learned from projects and feed them back to improve the work they were doing. They were actually involved at that time in a $5 billion Panama Canal expansion, and that consisted of a number of smaller projects. And when I say smaller, I'm like $50 million. So they really needed to capture what had happened on those projects and improve the whole process. So I developed a proposal and it was accepted and I delivered this training in Panama. And I really have to say, I think I learned more from the participants in that training session than they learned from me. I've always felt like writing was one of my really creative skills, and I think that's what attracted the Panama Canal to this lessons learned, is because they had a specific need, and they saw what I had created as satisfying that need. So it's sort of a supply and demand type situation, but it turned out to be a very valuable event for me in the long run, because many other people have since then asked me about my training, and I also did some training in Dubai as a result of the work I had done.
1: So you came to us as a published author, not only of a blog, but you've also written a couple of books. Tell us about that.
0: Well, certainly with the work I had done at ConocoPhillips in developing Lessons Learned, there was a tremendous amount of information I really thought I ought to share with the project community. So I wrote one book in 2013, Project Management Lessons Learned, And then again, I had an opportunity to work with a very academic and reputable publisher, and I published that book in 2018. And I included a number of other subjects rather than just lessons learned. I talked about sustainability, which is a big buzzword in corporate life right now. I talked about organizations developing capability to deliver what they want as projects, So that's been a big part of my life over the past 10 years, is actually working on those several books. After I finished the book in 2018, I really felt like I wanted to return to the corporate workforce, and that's one reason I pursued this program at the Foundation for Blind Children. About five years ago, my eyesight began to worsen. I had glaucoma for about 10 years and had suffered severe damage to my optic nerve because I had severe sleep apnea. And so for those nerves, there was a lot of oxygen loss. My ophthalmologist said he'd done about all he could with the glaucoma, but he sent me then to Dr. Lisa Childs at the Foundation for Blind Children because he had heard such good things about her ability to diagnose and help people with poor eyesight. And so she informed me of this program that was sponsored by the state of Arizona, which was intended to give blind or visually disabled individuals the assistive tools and technologies and orientation and mobility To help them return to the workforce. And I I was accepted to that program. And it was one of the most valuable things I've ever done. Because at the time I started losing my eyesight and wasn't able to really read text like newspapers. I became very frustrated because I'd always done a lot of research, background reading, and other subject matter that I thought might happen to impact the areas I was really interested in. After graduating from the program, I've been looking for an opportunity in industry, and I really have used a lot of the skills. I acquired in the program. So that's essentially where I am right now. I'm looking for an opportunity. I'm actively involved in a lot of different things because I see a lot of students who not only are good writers, they're artists, they're musically inclined. And I think those students really should express themselves creatively because I think that assists them in being able to assimilate with the rest of the population. We had one student in my program who enjoyed doing acrylic art, and she expressed that creativity. And actually, we held an art fair here at FBC where her art was on display. So I encourage the other students to express themselves, whether it's in a musical form, in art, in writing. But the creativity aspect I think is important because it's a way for students to feel great about what they've accomplished. And it doesn't matter whether you're visually disabled or not, people will recognize the talent and the creativity you have by what you produce and what you're able to share with them. So I think that's a byproduct of a lot of the training that we have at FBC. And that's the purpose of
1: this podcast, where once you get past the initial shock of visual impairment and the emotions that go with that, you're able to move on and to have a full life, not a worse life,
0: but a different life. Exactly. That's the important thing to think of, is your mind is such a powerful organ. If you decide you want to accomplish something and you set a plan, your subconscious, your mind, will find the resources. It'll help develop the plan. It'll help you accomplish what you want to accomplish. And I think that's so important for students to remember. Uh that's something I've carried with me for many years. You may be limited with one sense, but it heightens all the other senses you have, the sense of smell, the sense of hearing, touch. And when you integrate all those things together, I think you can feel very good about what you're able to accomplish.
1: So how have you used that technology that you learned here at FBC to handle your current projects and scenarios?
0: The first way that's most evident is in the job search skills. Certainly in the office applications, Microsoft Word, preparing a resume, looking for jobs that are online. That's a lot of internet work. And then preparing cover letters, saving those cover letters and resumes to my hard drive so I can always have a reference to go back to, and then completing the application online for the specific positions I'm interested in. Those really made me use the skills that I learned at FBC. And the other thing is I continue to write this blog on project management, which requires me, of course, to develop a Word document put my ideas together and to edit them. And recently, I've actually become associated with a group here in Phoenix called SCORE. It's the Service Corps of Retired Executives. And I've actually written two articles for SCORE that were recently published in the SCORE newsletters. I've attended a couple of workshops that SCORE has sponsored, and I intend to develop My own workshop, I have a certified SCORE mentor now who's helping me with this. One of the requirements is that you prepare a PowerPoint presentation, which is certainly one of the skills I acquired while at FBC. Right. You gave us a presentation about project management. So that prepares
1: you to continue to make PowerPoint presentations that you probably need to use now and ones that you need to make in the future.
0: That's exactly right. I've gone back and actually reviewed my notes that we kept in detail on PowerPoint and Word and Outlook and Excel. The SCORE workshop is one I'm particularly interested in because the project management blog that I'd written for the past 10 years talked about project managers and their teams in project settings. And I found that there's a lot of transferability between what I'm talking to the project managers about and what I'm talking to Small business owners and their business teams about and how they relate to the business community. So, I see some real carryover from the work with projects to the score organization. And it's given me an opportunity to meet a number of new people, network with a number of people. So, I've attended a couple of workshops. And the instructors have been very valuable in leading me into some areas where my writing and my communication might result in a position in industry. So you came to the FPC
1: program and you had just published that book in 2018. Right. So that was hot off the press, basically. Yes. What is the difference between the two books that you've published?
0: The second book is more Inclusive of some subjects like sustainability, I recognized that between 2013 when I published the first book and 2018 when the second one came out that the whole aspect of sustainability is so important to us now with global warming. In fact, one of the chapters I wrote was actually selected to be included in an online repository by the United Nations in expressing their initiatives and objectives and goals for sustainability. So I feel very good about that. Once again, it was a creative expression. I put together some ideas and I expressed them in a way that other people really grabbed hold of and said this ought to be included in a larger sense. The other difference was I talked more about organizations developing capability because I think some organizations who want to expand their markets, their horizons, their products, they don't have the capability internally at the present time, but they want to be able to do those things. They want to be able to expand in new directions. In its broadest definition, capability is a combination of organization, process, technology, in a way that allows an organization to achieve its intended objectives. You roll together process and technology, and those are topics we've talked about a lot in our work at FBC. That's the biggest difference between 2018 and 2013 in terms of the books.
1: Would you recommend that someone get both of them, or would you just stick with the second? I
0: think the second one. I think the second one is more inclusive. And the other thing it includes is a lot of systems dynamics, uh, a lot of things about how organizations work together and sometimes the way they prevent certain parts of the organization from accomplishing what they want to accomplish just because of their management objectives or what's often called accidental adversaries. Two parts of the organization who should be in total agreement have their own objectives, and in trying to satisfy those individual objectives, they cancel out the combination of the two. The other thing about the second book that I've emphasized to lots of people is that even though I do a lessons learned process or framework for projects, that can equally apply to any scenario. It's a fact-based investigative framework. You could be facing a situation that's not related to a project, but for which the actual result and the expected result don't quite agree. And in sorting out exactly what happened in that situation, you need to be fact-based, you need to be investigative, you need to look at deliverables, facts, perspectives. And so I've written in a number of places that that application of the principles in my book can be not only to projects, but also to other basic scenarios. So we'll give all the contact details at
1: the end, but why don't you tell the name of the book that we've been talking about?
0: The name of the book is Project Management Lessons Learned, A Continuous Process Improvement Framework. It's available on Amazon or any other book service. Or directly from CRC Press, which is my publisher. The title of your book there
1: has three or four terms that we may want to define, even though they can sound straightforward. What is project management?
0: Project management, as I said earlier, is in its simplest form a methodology or discipline that turns strategy into action for either individuals or organizations.
1: Right, because it's a term that we didn't have 20, 30 years ago, maybe.
0: No, it's only been, I'm sure project management was used during the Second World War and and the aftermath of that. It found its way into industry about 30 years ago. There were best practices that developed. Companies wanted to have repeatable, consistent outcomes for their projects. That was the birth of what's called the Program Management Officer, the PMO. But you're right, project management is something that now, if you look at every description of what organizations do, there's some aspect of project management. And the reason is it adds a discipline by letting you develop a plan a schedule, resource allocation, milestones, deliverables. In other words, it adds that structure to your thought process that often is lacking. When I was a student at FBC, I actually assisted a professor at Arizona State University in teaching project management for research to his PhD students. He was very concerned that he had doctoral students who didn't pull their research together and summarize it and complete it in a very succinct form. They were just too open-ended. So he asked me to come in and teach them project management as a discipline that helped them complete their doctoral work, bring their research to a conclusion, and that way they were ready to go on to the next step in life as opposed to just being so open-ended.
1: How can a project management help those who are visually
0: impaired? Being visually impaired doesn't mean you can't put a plan together. Even if you express it in Word, if you break down a project that goes from strategy to action, you can actually list the topics that ought to be covered, the sequence of events and activities, that need to be followed. There is no limit today to where project management is being used in the world. So I encourage FBC students to embrace project management either as a way to accomplish what they need to accomplish with their studies now, or as a career path after they leave FBC. And so what specific
1: things would you suggest for FBC students to enrich their education and apply project
0: management to their lives? There are several things, Matthew, and you and I have discussed these over time. I've sat in many roundtable discussions at FBC where the question was posed to the students in the roundtable, what is your biggest fear when you engage the public, and inevitably the answer to that question is public speaking. Students don't feel prepared. They don't know how to prepare. They feel a little off guard when they find themselves in a public situation with other people and have to express themselves. So one of the things I think FBC should teach, in addition to the PowerPoint skills in developing presentations, is how to organize your thoughts, how to decide what your message is, how to engage your audience so you keep them moving right along with your presentation. How do you do all those things so that at the end of your PowerPoint, the audience says, I really gained something from this. And the reason was that the speaker was so engaging and prepared the PowerPoint slides in such a way that you wanted to know more about the subject. The second thing and I've talked to this to a number of the FBC instructors and students about this, is some of the principles that Lewis Tice espoused in his workshops called Achieving Your Potential or Investment in Excellence. People move toward and become like that which they think about. Students approaching their work every day need to be very cognizant that if they want to move in a specific direction, they have to think about those things very seriously. They have to think in terms of my mind is going to help me accomplish this. So I think we need to teach those things to students because sometimes in the frustration and the attempt to become familiar with their limitations, oftentimes people get frustrated and just have negative thoughts. But those negative thoughts, if you take that one principle, people move toward and become like that which they think about. I think that's a very powerful principle. Every student has a very powerful mind, and that mind, with its subconscious, can approach problems and problem-solve and create things that you wouldn't think would be possible just because giving your mind a specific objective, it will find the resources. The other principle that Lou Tice expressed is in order to make bold plans, you don't have to have all the resources at your fingertips right now. If you make those bold plans, your subconscious will find the resources. They'll develop the plan. And that's why oftentimes when we go to bed in the evening and we have a question or issue that we can't resolve. When we get up in the morning, you say, aha, I see a new light on this. I see a new perspective. I've gained a little bit more insight. The other thing I want to express is whatever product you're working on, whether it's an internal product for your coursework here or whether it's an external product that other people will see out there, make it the best product you possibly can make. Be a professional in your attitude. And I have a good baseball story, and Matthew, you know, How much I love baseball! When Derek Jeter was in his rookie season with the New York Yankees, he was in the field one day working out with the rest of the team, and he happened to be with Don Mattingly, who's another great Yankee Hall of Famer. And when the manager called the team into the dugout, Mattingly looked at Jeter and said, "Let's sprint into the dugout." And so they sprinted into the dugout. When they got there. Jeter turned to Mattingly and said, why did you suggest that we sprint into the dugout? And Mattingly said, this is something I learned from another Yankee great, Joe DiMaggio. Someone may see you on the field and that may be the only time they ever see you. So express yourself as a professional. Give it everything you've got. Make that product the best product you can because that person may never see you again. Be a professional in everything you do. And Cheater kept that in his mind all the years until he retired and he told that as a favorite story at his retirement because everything that he did while he was a professional was guided by those principles. Make every product that you work on the best product you possibly can make. I love baseball. I think many people here know that because I my PowerPoint presentation. That's the story uh, I want you to tell. You want to tell that yeah. story?
1: How did you get into project management?
0: <laughs> okay, I'll fill that in. When I was uh, 10 years old, I was living in a section of North Carolina that was just an avid baseball region. And so every Saturday, I would watch the baseball game of the week on television. And I'd prepare a sandwich and sit down. Baseball game of the week came on about 1 p.m. every Saturday in the summertime. And I was seated by about 1230. From 1230 to 1 o'clock on that station, there was a program that played in the mid-50s called Industry on Parade. And Industry on Parade was a cavalcade of new technologies that have been developed after World War II and how those new technologies were applied in industry. And the real thing they informed us about was process. Every one of these new technologies, when it was employed in industry, used a process to create the outcome or the result. And as I sat there and watched that program every Saturday, It put in my mind a really good imprint of what process was. In fact, it was the best description of what process is, even better than what I learned in college or in graduate school. I mean, process in graduate school, you talk about feedback and control systems and those types of things, but to actually sit there and watch a bottle operation or a group of houses going together, there were processes and it's always stayed with me that's the reason i think i went into process modeling process management and project management is because all those things seem to fit together and it was all because of, of baseball from 1957 which may seem like an unusual story and i did enjoy the games of the week every week But I actually began to like what I was seeing on the industry on parade programs because it really caused me to think over the years, what does it take to put together the buildings that we live in, the food that we eat, the cars that we drive? They're all
1: processes. So how did you approach this when you were going to college? and graduate school. Was it a business school or how did it come across?
0: I really first learned project management about 1995 because I had a manager at UNICAL who was a very strict project manager and believed in it and believed in process and project work. And so since that time I've embraced project management as well. I didn't really learn project management in college. They didn't teach it as a specific course. I think where I picked it up was First, with Ford Motor Company, when I was in product planning, I had to put some action plans together, which eventually became projects. But I think the world has embraced project management over the past 50 years because that's, you know, we talk about the Manhattan Project in World War II, which created the atomic bomb. Not a lot of people pointed to the word project in the Manhattan Project, but it's been the basis for a lot of the work over many years.
1: So tell me about a project that went well and tell me about a project that didn't go so well based on project management principles.
0: When I worked for Unical many years ago, I was assigned to be a project manager opening some new fast break convenience stores. That was a new format that we were rolling out. We were converting service stations, gas stations, to gas stations with a convenience store, and usually one that sold fast food like Subway sandwiches or those types of things. So I was assigned to be a project manager for the opening of about five of those stores. We often had franchisees for these stations, so I interacted with people who were going to be operating as franchisees and make sure they were all trained. And in one particular situation, we had a store, it was a 2,500 square foot convenience store. That's a fairly large convenience store. And I was in charge of making sure all the shelves have been stocked, all the employees were trained all the equipment was working, all the gas pumps were in order and working. There was another man in the organization who was the construction manager, and he had an objective sheet that he was working to that said he had to complete a certain number of stores before a certain date. So on the date that we were supposed to open the store I had been working at, I thought, we're just not ready. We need another day. Of training. And so I delayed the opening of that store for a day. And the construction manager called me and said, Wait, I've got this objective of saying that these stores are complete, which means that they're open and ready to go. And here you are delaying this opening. He said, How can you possibly do that? And I said to him, I am the project manager of this project. That means that I am responsible for the good things and the bad things and whether it's ready to operate or not. So even though even though I alienated the construction manager, he understood my position That's probably a good project, the way it ended up, because I exerted the authority I had been given as a project manager in completing that project. So you gave us a term earlier
1: called lessons learned. Did you learn any lessons from that?
0: Yes, I learned that even though that construction manager was a higher rank than I was in the organization, a higher salary grade, and had much more responsibility in terms of total build out of these stations, the project manager Who was in charge of opening those stores was given the responsibility of looking at every aspect. That was a lesson learned that I carried on to four other additional stores. Because when situations arose where people didn't exactly like what you were doing, they still had to recognize that you were the authority and the project manager for opening those stores. Now, the question, of course, became, What was it that I didn't like about the opening day that delayed the opening? And it was really the training of the staff. I felt there were several people who still weren't professional enough in their attitude toward the customers. And I wanted us to delay that for a day to have the store manager step in and actually work with those employees to make sure they understood their roles and what they we're trying to accomplish in interfacing with the customer. So that was one of the biggest lessons learned. There was another project one time that didn't turn out as well. When I worked for Ford Motor Company, I was in product planning and product engineering. I was living in Detroit at the time, but I was working on a European project. And the first approach at putting together this product for Europe was to just modify an existing vehicle and assumed that it would work in the European market, which was a very bad assumption. I wasn't the project manager for that, but I was the product planner, which meant I was working, developing all the specifications, all the regulations, all the things that had to be in compliance with European countries to sell this vehicle. And we automatically assumed that the engineering that had taken place in North America with this vehicle could be transferred to Europe and would immediately be grasped and used by the Europeans. And they totally rejected it. <laughs> I never figured out whether it was a not invented here type attitude because it wasn't developed in the UK, or whether it was truly they didn't want to embrace and it didn't meet the product specifications that they were looking for. That was a project that went wrong, and I guess the lesson learned was to make sure that your end specifications, your functionality, the business requirements you're trying to satisfy truly meet the needs of all the stakeholders. Because I think we assumed the European community was a set of stakeholders that would just adopt naturally what we had designed in North America. And that wasn't the case at all.
1: And so that translates to the visually impaired community, because if you don't know your audience of visually impaired people, you may create a product for them that they don't need or can't use because you're coming at it from your perspective when you maybe haven't known people who are blind or visually impaired. That's
0: exactly right. So tell me about your family. Yeah, I I have a wonderful family. I've been married for 46 years. We have a daughter who is a lawyer in New York, and she's married to another lawyer And they have two children now. They have a five-year-old. And my daughter just had another baby. We're looking forward to going to visit as soon as we can. Their names are so unusual, though. Our first granddaughter, who's five now, they called her Quinn Penelope. Neither one of those names is anywhere in our family names. But the second granddaughter is Jordan Persephone. And so somewhere in time... My daughter and son-in-law looked into Greek literature and the Iliad and somehow came up with the names Penelope and Persephone. You know, those are names that my wife and I would never have thought of. The other thing about my family is since I have one daughter, I have to tell you that she has taken me on so many adventures that I probably would never have pursued on my own. I had never been horseback riding before, We took a vacation when we lived in California to Pebble Beach. She had taken some horseback riding lessons as a Girl Scout, and she wanted to go horseback riding at Pebble Beach. So she encouraged me to try it out, and I did. I went with her on a trail ride, and it was absolutely the most wonderful experience I've ever been on. I never would have done that if she hadn't suggested we do it.
1: So you've told us about the blog and the book you've written. Have you been a reader for years? Oh, yeah. I've been an
0: avid reader for many years. And sometimes I happen on a book that when I pick it up, I don't realize what an impact it's going to have on my thought processes. I picked up a book a couple of years ago called Big Science, Ernest Lawrence and the Invention that Launched the Military Industrial Complex. And I really didn't know anything about this, although I should have, from history. But it was a tremendous story about the changeover from science as bench science, what you could do in the laboratory with Bunsen burner and test tubes and things like that, to what's called big science, which is science that requires tremendous expenditures. When Ernest Lawrence invented the cyclotron in 1938 and 1939, Nobody knew how costly that was going to be, but it turned out to be one of the most valuable tools in nuclear physics. It opened up all the doors to understanding the subatomic particles in a way only big science could do. Ron Chernow, for example, who's the author of Hamilton. I think the story of John D. Rockefeller in the book Titan by Ron Chernow is a tremendous story. It has to do with John D. Rockefeller in the early days when oil was discovered in Pennsylvania, and he happened to be living in Cleveland at the time and was a businessman who was just starting into business. And then as oil was discovered in Pennsylvania, he eventually got involved in oil and became the owner of Standard Oil and so forth. I've got a collection, a little library of books, And I wouldn't give those books away for anything. I love to just pick them up and read through them and see things I hadn't seen before. Those types of things from history I find fascinating. So you actually
1: will go through very carefully and read those big coffee table books.
0: Well, when you say read, I like to see if I can order them on my Audible app or from the Talking Book Library. Because for me to use the tools I've acquired at the Foundation for Blind Children, like the CCTV and the Amigo, would take a long time to read.
1: Yeah, unfortunately, your book is specialized enough where it isn't on Audible and it isn't on the Library for the Blind.
0: It's on Kindle, though. It is on Kindle, you can, yes. You can acquire mm-hmm. it on Kindle. I can't keep up with the number of new books on subjects that have been written about so much in the past, but the new books bring out new research, new things that have happened, new perspectives, new data. And so it's really hard to keep up with everything. So as we end
1: this discussion here, which I thank you for coming out here for this, I'd like to have you give any contact info. Yes,
0: probably the best contact is my blog, melbostpmoexpert. PMO Expert. That's M E L B O S T P M O Expert. I've written over 200 articles in the past 10 years that you can access on that website. I'll also give you my email address in case you'd like to correspond. It's melbost, M-E-L-B-O-S-T at gmail.com. I also have a LinkedIn profile, if you'd like to look at that and see the various assignments and things I've done in my work history. And the title of your book again? Oh, the title of my book again, Project Management Lessons Learned, A Continuous Process Improvement Framework.
1: Okay, and you said it was CRC Press published that
0: for you. CRC Press, which is a very academic and well-respected graduate, undergraduate type text, or on Amazon. Matthew, thanks so much for the opportunity to express these ideas. And I feel assured that the students at FBC are in very good hands. The instructors are wonderful. I think the frustrations they're overcoming and the principles they're learning will guide them as they go out into the world once again. Thanks so much for the opportunity to do this. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for listening to See It Our Way, Podcast to help with awareness regarding blindness and low vision. Please click, like, and subscribe to follow our journey and connect with us through our website www.seeitourway.org/fbcpodcast and through all of our social media channels.